Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please join me welcoming for the first time Dr. Stephen Barr to the Institute of Catholic Culture. Uh, happy Mother's Day to all mothers here, and uh, thank you, uh, my thanks to Melanie Baker and Deacon Sabatino for inviting me to speak here, uh, and my thanks to you for, for coming out this evening. The title of my talk is Modern, uh, Science and Religion, The Myth of Conflict. Uh, there's a widespread perception that there's some kind of conflict between science and religion. Uh, atheists confidently assert that there is, and many religious people fear that there might be. Uh, and that undermines the faith of many. Now certainly some religious beliefs uh, do conflict with science, but why is there a perception that all religion, religion per se, uh, is contrary to science? I think people are mistaking one thing for another. There's a real long-standing and often bitter conflict going on, but it is not between religion and science. It is between religion and a philosophy called scientific materialism. Scientific materialism is an idea that grew up alongside of science, was inspired by science, and wraps itself in the mantle of science. It is the worldview of many scientists and of some people who presume to speak for science. But it has no claim to being science. It is rather a philosophical idea. The central tenet of scientific materialism is very simple. And this simplicity accounts for much of its appeal. It is that the ultimate reality is matter, so that everything that exists and everything that happens can be explained ultimately by the laws of physics and blind chance. For some of its adherents, however, scientific materialism is more than this. It's a passionately held ideology that sees science as having a saving mission, which is to free the human mind from irrationality and superstition among which they count religion. It is not enough that science is good and brings us understanding. There must be an enemy to be vanquished, and religion is cast in that role. This explains the strange zeal that some materialists have in propagating their ideas. They feel that they're taking part in a grand struggle between reason and its enemies. This gives their lives a heroic meaning and purpose. Scientific materialists have a well-developed critique of religion, which has at least three aspects, philosophical, historical, and scientific. Their philosophical claim is that there is an inherent contradiction between the scientific and religious outlooks. Science is based on reason and evidence, Whereas religion, they say, is irrational because it is based on dogma, faith, and mystery, which involve belief in things which cannot be seen and for which supposedly 
there is no evidence. Science is based on natural explanations and natural laws, whereas religion is based on miracles and the supernatural. They see religion as a matter of myth and magic, and therefore pure superstition, which is the very antithesis of a rational scientific outlook. Their historical claim is that religious believers and institutions have been hostile to science and have tried to suppress it. This is powerfully symbolized in the eyes of many by the Catholic Church's treatment of Galileo. And this impression is constantly reinforced in the public mind by the battles waged against evolution by biblical literalists. Their scientific claim is that the actual discoveries of modern science over the last 400 years have debunked or undermined fundamental Christian beliefs about the universe and mankind's place in it. As the story is often told, science has dealt one blow after another to the religious conception of the world. Copernicus showed that man is not the center of the universe. Newton showed that the world is governed by blind and impersonal forces. Modern astronomy showed how small and insignificant we are in the cosmic scheme. Darwin, they say, showed that humans differ only in degree from lower animals. Discoveries in fields such as neuroscience and artificial intelligence are expected to show, if they haven't already, that the supposed soul is just the working of the brain, a complex biological computer. And modern cosmology is invoked to show either that the universe had no beginning or that the universe created itself out of nothing by a quantum fluctuation. I'll deal with each of these three strands in turn. First, the philosophical. The philosophical critique is largely based on crude misunderstandings of traditional ideas about God and creation. Let's start with supernaturalism. Christianity and Judaism were never based on supernaturalism if we mean by that the rejection of the idea that there is a natural order. Indeed, scholars say that the book of Genesis was in part a polemic against the supernaturalism and superstition of ancient pagan religions. When Genesis said that the sun and moon were mere lamps placed by God in the heavens to light the night and day, it was countering the paganism that worshipped the sun and moon. When it said that man was made in the image of God and was to exercise dominion over the animals, Genesis was, among other things, countering the paganism in which men worshipped and bowed down to animals or to gods made in the image of animals. In paganism, the world was imbued with occult forces and populated by numerous deities, gods of the earth and ocean, goddesses of sex and fertility, and so forth. But Jews and Christians taught that there was only one God who was to be sought not within nature, not within its phenomena and forces, but outside of nature, a God who was indeed the author of nature. In this way, biblical religion desacralized and depersonalized the physical universe and made it indeed 
into a natural world, and thus helped to clear the ground for the later emergence of science. The biblical religions then taught that there is a natural order which comes from God. What characterizes this natural order and reflects the rationality of its creator is precisely that it is orderly, harmonious, and lawful. Consider this passage from the famous letter of Clement to the Corinthians, written about 97 AD. The heavens, as they revolve beneath his government, do so in quiet submission to him. The day and night run the course he has laid down for them. Sun, moon, and the starry choirs roll on in harmony at his command, none swerving from his appointed orbit. Laws of the same kind sustain the fathomless deeps of the abyss and the untold regions of the netherworld. The impassable ocean and all the worlds that lie beyond it are themselves ruled by the like ordinances of the Lord. Upon all these, the great architect and Lord of the universe has enjoined peace and harmony. Or consider this passage from the Christian apologist Minucius Felix, writing around 200 AD. If upon entering some home, you saw that everything there was well tended, neat, and decorative, you would believe that some master was in charge of it, and that he was himself much superior to those good things. So too, in the home of this world, when you see providence, order, and law in the heavens and on earth, believe that there is a Lord and author of the universe more beautiful than the stars themselves and the various parts of the whole world. So it was not the supernatural or miraculous departures from the order of nature, but the order of nature itself and its lawfulness that were seen as pointing to its creator. The ancient argument was that if there is a law, there must be a lawgiver. God was the lawgiver not only to Israel, but to the cosmos itself. God says in Jeremiah 33:25, when I have no covenant with day and night and have given no laws to heaven and earth, then too will I reject the descendants of Jacob and of my servant David. Psalm 148 tells of the sun, the moon, the stars, and the heavens obeying a divinely given law that will not pass away. The idea of God as rational lawgiver very likely helped give birth to modern science, as even some atheists at times concede. For example, the eminent biologist E.O. Wilson suggested the following as the reason that Chinese civilization, for all its impressive achievements in science and technology, did not produce a Newton or a Descartes. Quote, Chinese scholars had abandoned the idea of a supreme being with personal and creative properties. No rational author of nature existed in their universe. Consequently, the objects they meticulously described did not follow universal principles. In the absence of a compelling need for the notion of general laws, thoughts in the mind of God, so to speak, little or no search was made for them." Unquote. And the well-known cosmologist Andre Linde, also an atheist, has suggested that the notion of a universe governed 
by, quote, a single law in all its parts, unquote, is historically rooted in monotheism. Christianity does, of course, teach that there are supernatural realities, such as divine grace, that have effects in the world. But the word supernatural, which means above the natural, would make no sense unless there were a natural order in the first place. And the concept of miracles, which are extraordinary events that go beyond what is naturally possible, presupposes that there is a natural order that determines what is naturally possible and what is not. There's no logical contradiction between the idea of miracles and the idea of a lawful universe. For the same lawgiver who established the laws of nature can also suspend them. There's much confusion today, even among some Christian believers, about how nature relates to God. Instead of seeing God as the author of nature, they see God and nature as somehow opposed or in competition. So that if something has a natural explanation, that then God has nothing to do with it. And conversely, if God is the cause of something, it must be supernatural. Many, therefore, look for evidence of God only in what is outside the course of nature or inexplicable by science, that is, in the gaps of our scientific understanding. Hence the expression, the God of the gaps. And atheists think that by closing those gaps, they will leave no place for God to hide. The traditional Christian and Jewish view was quite different. If God, as creator of the natural world, established its laws and gave things their natural powers, then his existence is evident in nature itself and in its ordinary processes, whose power and working reflect God's own power and wisdom. This is the message of the following passage from the Book of Wisdom, a Jewish work of about 100 BC, which is recognized as part of the Bible by the Catholic and Orthodox churches. For all, all people who were ignorant of God were foolish by nature, and they were unable from the good things that are seen to know the one who exists. Nor did they recognize the artisan while paying heed to his works, but they supposed that either fire or wind or swift air or the circle of the stars or turbulent water or the luminaries of heaven were the gods that rule the world. If through delight in the beauty of these things people assumed them to be gods, let them know how much better than these is their Lord, for the author of beauty created them. And if people were amazed at their power and working, let them perceive from them how much more powerful is the one who formed them, for from the greatness and beauty of created things comes a corresponding perception of their creator. Notice the evidence of God to which this passage points, consists of phenomena that are perfectly natural. Fire, wind, swift air, the circle of the stars, turbulent water, and the luminaries of heaven, that is, the stars, planets, sun, and moon. Medieval theologians distinguished two ways in which God acts in the world. He can act directly in a supernatural manner, for example, turning water into wine, or he can accomplish his will through the operation of natural causes and processes. It has always been the Christian view 
that God ordinarily acts in the latter way. In the words of the 17th century Catholic theologian Suarez, quote, God does not interfere directly with the natural order where secondary causes produce, suffice to produce the intended effect, unquote. I will explain the term secondary causes in a moment. Here it may be read as natural causes. So he's saying God does not interfere directly with the natural order where natural causes suffice to produce the intended effect. This principle was important for the founding of science, for it implied that when confronted by some puzzling event or new phenomenon, we should look first for natural explanations. Superstitious people tend to see the supernatural in every unusual or strange event. But this was strongly criticized by the great medieval scientist and theologian, Nicole Orem. In explaining marvels of nature, he said, quote, there is no reason to take recourse to the heavens or to demons or to our glorious God, as if he would produce these effects directly any more than he directly produces those effects whose natural causes we believe are well known to us, unquote. Another great medieval scientist and theologian, Jean Buridan, said that when confronted by new phenomena, we should look, we should seek, quote, appropriate natural causes, unquote. That's why the Catholic Church, for example, does not declare a miracle to be worthy of belief until it has excluded the likelihood of natural explanations. This brings us to the all-important theological distinction between primary and secondary causality. I think the failure to grasp this basic distinction is one of the main reasons that people see a conflict between science and religion. This distinction can be explained using a simple analogy. Consider the play Hamlet. In that play, the character Hamlet kills Polonius by stabbing him through a curtain. Now consider the following question. I'm gonna, let's take a vote. Did Polonius die because Hamlet stabbed him? Or did he die because Shakespeare wrote the play that way? Okay, okay we don't need a vote. Some people don't laugh at that. They don't, they, 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 obviously, it's a silly question for both our causes, but at different levels. The character Hamlet is the cause within the play of Polonius's death, the horizontal cause, one might say, or what theologians traditionally called the secondary cause, whereas Shakespeare is the vertical or primary cause of the whole play and its entire plot, including, of course, Polonius's death. There is no competition or conflict between these two levels of causality. By analogy, the natural causes within the universe, which are studied by scientists and other people, are horizontal or secondary causes, where, while God, as author of nature, is the vertical or primary cause. The analogy makes clear just how silly it is to treat evolution and creation as alternatives, as both fundamentalists and atheists do. Did this species of animal arise by natural processes? or because God wrote nature's script that way. Of course, both. This is why the Catholic Church has never, the magisterium has never condemned or opposed evolution. This also makes clear why scientific materialists are wrong to think 
that believers in God do so without evidence. For materialists, evidence means either directly observing something with our senses or inferring that something exists as a natural cause of what we observe, the way we observe a compass needle move and infer that there is a magnetic field. Obviously, God cannot be seen in these ways, for he is neither a part of nature, which could be sensed, nor a natural cause. And yet, God is a cause, the ultimate cause. He is not a cause within nature, but the cause of nature. Thus, nature gives evidence of God in the same way a play or novel gives evidence of its author, even if the author does not make an appearance within the book. Now let's turn to the materialist's historical critique of religion, the idea that Christianity and the Catholic Church in particular opposed science and tried to hold it back. This is caused, called by historians the conflict thesis, and it has been completely discredited by historians of science. It is a myth, pure and simple, whose roots lie in the Enlightenment and in the contempt many of its thinkers had for revealed religion. Its growth was aided in Catholic countries by anti-clericalism and in Protestant countries by anti-Catholic prejudice. The conflict thesis was popularized by two enormously influential books written in the late 19th century. The History of the Conflict Between Science and Religion by John William Draper and A, a History of the Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom by Andrew Dixon White, the first president of Cornell University. These books are dismissed by scholars today as full of errors of fact and interpretation and historically worthless. One eminent historian calls Draper's book, quote, a thinly disguised anti-Catholic rant. The scientific revolution which took place in the 17th century and gave rise to modern science did not occur in opposition to revealed religion. In fact, most of its great figures were devout Christians. Copernicus, whose work sparked the scientific revolution, was an official of the Catholic Church. Johannes Kepler, famous for his three laws of planetary motion, was a devout Lutheran who announced the discovery of one of these laws with the words, I thank thee, Lord God, our creator, that thou hast allowed me to see the beauty in thy work of creation. Galileo remained a devout Catholic throughout his life. Descartes, whose work in mathematics was foundational for modern science, believed in God and the reality of the spiritual soul. Blaise Pascal was not only a mathematician and physicist of genius, but a man whose life was transformed by an intense mystical experience and who wrote in defense of Christian belief and against skepticism. Robert Boyle, the first modern chemist, left a large sum of money to endow a series of lectures whose purpose was to combat the ideas of, quote, notorious infidels, which meant in those days atheists. And Isaac Newton, the greatest of them all, spent as much time on theological and scriptural studies as he did on science. All of them saw their work as showing the beauty of God's creation rather than as supporting atheism. And this was true long beyond the 17th century. For example, the two greatest physicists of the 19th century, Michael Faraday 
and James Clark Maxwell were exceptionally devout Christians, even by the standards of their day. Moreover, the scientific revolution did not spring out of thin air. Its foundations were laid in the universities of medieval Europe, as has been strongly emphasized by the eminent historian of science, Edward Grant. It was in those universities that for the first time in human history, science was studied and taught in, on a continuous basis from uh, generation to generation by a stable community of scholars. That is, where, a, where science was first institutionalized, as Grant put it. These universities, there were about 100 universities in Europe at the end of the Middle Ages, and they produced hundreds of thousands of graduates who were introduced to scientific questions and from whose ranks uh, scientific talent could emerge. The scientific community and scientific public these universities created were the soil in which the seeds of the scientific revolution germinated. Because the Catholic Church specifically is often accused of having been anti-science due to its treatment of Galileo, I would like to focus for a few minutes on the Catholic Church's record with regard to science. A little known fact that dramatically illustrates the positive role the Catholic Church has played in the development of science is the large number of Catholic priests who made major discoveries and contributions. We, we Catholics have our litanies. What follows is not a litany of saints, though there are a couple of saints among them, but a litany of priest scientists. For reasons of time, I can only mention a few of the most outstanding. Starting with the medieval period, we have St. Albert the Great, and I encourage you to come to the talk on Tuesday by Brother Thomas Davenport, who is a fellow particle physicist and a great guy. He's, he's, a, he's a friend of mine and uh, will give a great talk. But St. Albert the Great did original work of observation and classification in botany and zoology. The Dictionary of Scientific Biography calls his work on vegetables and plants, quote, a masterpiece for its independence of treatment, its accuracy and range of detailed description, its freedom from myth, and its innovation in systematic classification." Unquote. Robert Grossetesti studied the refraction, a bishop, by the way, all of these medievals were bishops, he studied the refraction of light and came up with a geometrical theory of how lenses magnify images that was essentially correct. I don't have a picture for Bradwardine, I guess he was shy of cameras, but here's, here's something from Bradwardine. Bradwardine uh, showed that Aristotle's ideas on the relation of force and motion were not self-consistent and developed his own mathematical theory of them. And his was one of the first attempts ever, maybe the first attempt, to give a mathematical description of a physical process. Nicole Orem, Nicholas Orem, made many contributions to mathematics and physics that were far ahead of his time. He was really a genius. For example, he seems to have been the first person to graph physical quantities, thus anticipating by three centuries some of Descartes' ideas. And he used that method to prove an important theorem about uniformly accelerated motion. Based on this theorem, Arem correctly speculated that the speed of a falling body <clears throat> is proportional to the time it has fallen, 
which anticipated Galileo's famous law of falling bodies. Here's a diagram from one of Orem's works, uh, a diagram they used to prove the theorem about accelerated motion. And a very similar diagram, essentially the same diagram that Galileo used uh, 300 years later to prove the same theorem. It's very likely that Galileo was aware of and influenced by Orem's work, though that's a hard thing to demonstrate. Skipping to the 17th century, the century of the scientific revolution, uh, there are many important pre-scientists, including Niels Stenson, Marin Mersenne, Christopher Scheiner, Christoph Scheiner, John Battista Riccioli, Francesco Grimaldi, Benedetto Castelli, and Buonaventura Cavalieri. Stenson, also known as Steno, was Danish by birth. <clears throat> he was a Lutheran, but he converted as an adult to Catholicism, became a priest, and eventually was made a bishop. As bishop, he was noted for his asceticism and solicitude for the poor. He was beatified by Pope John Paul II. Stenson was the greatest anatomist of his time. He made major discoveries in that field, especially about the glandular lymphatic system. Several features of the body are named after him, such as Stenson's duct, Stenson's vein, and Stenson's foramina. But his greatest contribution, for which he is considered a founder of the science of geology, was developing the correct theory of the origin of sedimentary rocks and indeed understanding for the first time that ro these rocks were originally underwater and formed by sedimentation, and the origin of fossils. His theories unlocked the history of the Earth. He's considered one of the principal founders of the science of geology. This, uh, this slide shows Stenson uh, himself, and also a, I think they're called a Google Doodle, uh, which Google put up I, on Stenson's uh, birthday. Uh, and it's made up of layers. It's, you won't be able to see them from where you're sitting. Those colored layers are sediments, and embedded in them are tiny little fossils. Okay? So even Google celebrates him as a founder of geology. Mersenne is considered the founder of acoustics for fundamental discoveries in the theory of sound and vibrations. His religious house became a meeting place of famous scientists and his voluminous correspondence with other scientists was an important means by which they learned of each other's work. This was before there were scientific conferences and scientific journals and the internet and the other ways scientists communicate with each other. In that day, he was the way scientists communicated with each other uh, and was one of the founders, actually, of the Paris Academy of Science. The Dictionary of Scientific Biography calls him one of the architects of the European scientific community. Shiner, Riccioli, and Grimaldi were Jesuits. The Jesuits have a great tradition in astronomical research, which continues to this day. The very calendar we use was developed by a Jesuit astronomer, Christoph Clavius, in the 1500s. Christoph Shiner was one of the discoverers of sunspots. There were four other people who discovered them at the same time. When I say discoverers, with discoverers of sunspots using telescopes. Uh, and one of the other was Galileo. Here's a slide showing Shiner making observations of the sun. On this next slide is a picture from one of uh, Shiner's treat his great treatise on sunspots. 
in which he's showing the sunspot traveling across the face of the sun on consecutive days. You can see a gap. That was a cloudy day where he couldn't make <laughs> observations. And that, he showed that the, 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 the sun was rotating on an axis by what, the progression of the sunspots across the sun. Um, John Battista Riccioli developed and calibrated pendulum clocks for the precise measurement of time and used them to make the first precise measurement of the acceleration of gravity and to study falling bodies. He wrote a technical astronomical encyclopedia which became a standard reference work for astronomers for over a century. Together with Grimaldi, who I'll talk about in a second, he made an accurate map of the moon's surface and developed the nomenclature now used to describe features of the lunar landscape. Incidentally, many of the largest craters on the moon are named after Jesuit astronomers. <laughs> no coincidence. Francesco Grimaldi discovered the extremely important physics phenomenon of diffraction of light. Anyone who has studied physics, undergraduate or graduate level physics, knows that your textbook is going to have at least one chapter on diffraction. Since we now know that all matter is made up of waves, uh, diffraction shows that light is a wave. And we now know that all matter is made up of waves, and so that's why diffraction is a very important phenomenon in all branches of physics. So on the right are some pictures of diffraction phenomena. They include, for example, the colored bands on DVDs and CDs. So when you see those colored bands, think of Father Francesco Grimaldi, who discovered diffraction in the 1600s. Benedetto Castelli, a Benedictine priest, is considered the founder of hydraulics. He was a friend and pupil of Galileo and the teacher of two important scientific figures, Buonaventura Cavalieri and Evangelista Torricelli. Bonaventura Cavalieri, himself a priest, made important contributions to the development of integral calculus. You see on this slide a quote from Leibniz. The, uh, Leibniz and Newton are the, were the discoverers or inventors if you, of calculus. And Leibniz himself, uh, Leibniz attested to the importance of Cavalieri's work. In the 18th century, there was Lazzaro Spallanzani, one of the leading biologists of that century. His contributions to biology were varied and numerous. He was the first to explain the process of digestion. He showed that fertilization in mammals occurred through the union of sperm and egg. He even did experiments trying to breed animals of various types, such as dogs with cats, one of his less successful experiments. <laughs> he studied echolocation in bats and the regeneration of limbs in lower animals. Among his most important work was a series of experiments disproving the theory of spontaneous generation of life. These experiments influenced the famous work of Louis Pasteur a century later. There was René Just Oy, the founder of crystallography. Here's, here's a painting of him holding a crystal and calipers in his hand. In the 19th century, there was Giuseppe Piazzi, who, among his many contributions, discovered the first asteroid, which he named Ceres. I show a picture of Ceres taken by the Hubble Space Telescope on the top. On the bottom, one taken by a, a, a satellite that just went in March. A satellite reached Ceres and went into orbit around it. Okay? And Ceres was discovered in 1801 by Piazzi. 
Uh, it was recently reclassified as a dwarf planet because it is the largest asteroid and in fact so large that its self-gravity uh, forces it into a spherical shape. So that's why it's now been reclassified along with Pluto as a dwarf planet. Pietro Angelo Secchi, a Jesuit, is considered one of the founders of modern astrophysics. He pioneered the use of spectroscopy in the study of stars and the sun, and he made the first classification of stars based on their spectra, which is the basis of the classification now used by astrophysicists. A beautiful symbol of the harmony of faith and science is the fact that Secchi did some of his groundbreaking research using an observatory built on top of the Church of Sant'Ignazio in Rome. So there on the right, you can see there's the Church of Sant'Ignazio. If you've been to Rome, it's near the Piazza Navona. It's a, one of the most beautiful churches in Rome. And on top, the observatory that Secchi used, which is no longer there, he, uh, but the church is worth visiting anyway. Uh, there was Bernard, uh, Bernard Bolzano, a Czech priest who helped put modern mathematics on a more rigorous foundation. Anyone who has studied advanced math has heard of the Bolzano-Weierstrass theorem and the Bolzano function. Here's a quote from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, saying that he is perhaps the greatest logician in the period between Leibniz and Frege. And of course, there was Gregor Mendel, who founded the science of genetics. In the 20th century, there was Julius Newland, a chemistry professor at the University of Notre Dame, who did work that led to the development of neoprene, the first synthetic rubber. And last but not least, Georges Lemaitre, the founder of the Big Bang Theory, the clerical gentleman with which I began the talk. He, he some people, uh, the Big Bang Theory is generally credited to two people, uh, Alexander Friedman, a Russian mathematician, and Georges Lemaitre, the uh, a Belgian priest and physicist. What a glorious record of achievement. Professor Lawrence Principe of Johns Hopkins University, who is both a chemist and a noted historian of science, has written, quote, the Catholic Church has been probably the largest <laughs> single and longest term patron of science in history, unquote. Now, the rest of my talk will deal with the third strand of the materialist critique of religion. The notion that many of the greatest discoveries of modern science have undermined or debunked the traditional Christian and Jewish view of the universe, of human beings, and of our place in the universe. As things stood a hundred years ago, this view had some plausibility. But much has changed since then. There have been several major discoveries or developments especially in physics, that seem more, in, more consonant, more in line with the Christian and Jewish conception of the universe and of man's and place in the universe than with the materialist's view. I'd like to discuss four of them, or maybe five, we'll see. In each case, I'll mention earlier discoveries that had seemed to favor the materialist's view, and then the more recent dis discovery or development that points the other way. The first has to do with the structure of the cosmos. We've all heard how Copernicus overthrew the religious picture of the cosmos by showing that man is not at the center of it, and how later discoveries demoted us even further by showing that the earth is just a tiny speck lost in the vastness of space. Actually, however, the idea of the earth as the center of the universe did not come from the Bible, but from ancient Greek science, specifically Aristotle and Ptolemy. 
nor was the center a place of honor in Aristotle's cosmos, but the lowliest. And the farther things were from the center, the more noble and exalted they were. There was one idea about cosmology, however, that did enter Western thought from biblical revelation. It was not about space and whether it had a center. It was about time and whether it had a beginning. The pagan thinkers of antiquity, including Aristotle, conceived of the universe as having had no beginning. Modern atheists have also tended to prefer this idea. And until about 100 years ago, almost every indication from science seemed to support it. Physicists discovered that the amount of energy never changes. It cannot be created or destroyed. Chemists found that the number of atoms never changes in chemical reactions. In Newtonian physics, time extended infinitely into past and future, just as space extended infinitely in all directions. Almost everything suggested that matter, energy, space, and time had always existed and always would. The idea of a beginning came to be seen as outdated religious mythology. The Nobel Prize winning chemist Svante Arrhenius said in 1911, the opinion that something can come from nothing is at variance with the present day state of science according to which matter is immutable. The Nobel Prize winning physicist Walter Nernst declared, to deny the infinite duration of time would be to betray the very foundations of science. But in 1916, Einstein proposed his theory of gravity called general relativity, and everything changed. In the 1920s, the Belgian theoretical physicist Georges Lemaitre, who was also a Catholic priest, as we saw, realized that the equations of Einstein's theory could describe a universe whose space was expanding. Combining this with the, with the observation by astronomers in the late 20s that distant galaxies were receding from us, Lemaitre proposed that what is now called the Big Bang Theory. It took a long while to gain acceptance, primarily for scientific reasons, but partly also because of philosophical prejudice against the idea of a beginning. But in time, the evidence grew overwhelming that the hypo hypothesized Big Bang did occur about, about uh, 14 billion years ago. And in the standard Big Bang theory, everything began at that point, matter, space, and time itself. It is possible that something preceded the Big Bang, and it wasn't the absolute beginning of the universe, but only the beginning of some phase of its history. And there are many speculative models and scenarios uh, that have been proposed over the, over the decades uh, along those lines. There are, however, very strong theoretical reasons to think that the universe did have an absolute beginning a finite time ago if not at the Big Bang, then at an earlier point. So science now strongly supports the idea, that an idea that came from biblical revelation and was dismissed both by the pagans of antiquity and modern materialists and for a long time seemed contrary to science. The second development I'll speak about has to do with evidence of design in nature. Religious believers have always seen such evidence the starry heavens and the forms of living things, and the other wonders of nature, 
were seen as having been fashioned by the hand of God. Modern science seemed, however, to undercut this idea by showing that they were the result of mechanisms that depended upon a combination of impersonal laws and blind chance. Whereas Genesis spoke of God placing the sun and moon in the firmament, astrophysics showed that they condensed from swirling clouds of gas and dust under the attraction of gravitational forces. Darwin showed how intricate structures, how the intricate structures of living things could arise from natural selection operating upon random mutations. When Napoleon asked the physicist Laplace why God was never mentioned in his great treatise on celestial mechanics, Laplace famously replied that he had, quote, no need of that hypothesis. The laws of physics had displaced God. This was a new way of thinking about the laws of nature. From ancient times, as we've seen, it had been argued that the lawfulness of nature pointed to a lawgiver. But now it was argued by many that the laws of nature in and of themselves constituted a sufficient explanation for the order of nature. And this does seem to make a certain amount of sense if one thinks about the shapes or patterns that we see in tangible objects or collections of objects, such as crystals or seashells or sunflowers or the motions of heavenly bodies. Consider, for example, the solar system. It exhibits many striking mathematical patterns, three of which were discovered by Johannes Kepler. He found that each planet follows an elliptical path around the sun, with its speed varying in such a way that the line from planet to sun sweeps out equal areas in equal times. He also discovered a simple algebraic relation between the period of a planet's orbit and its distance from the sun. All these and many other patterns in the solar system can be explained by the laws of Newtonian physics. Does that mean, however, that the law... By the way, that is why Laplace said that to Napoleon, because Laplace was the one who showed that all of these patterns in the solar system could be explained by the laws of Newtonian physics, and that's why he didn't need God. Does that mean, however, that the laws of physics, of Newtonian physics, explained the existence of cosmic order? No, quite the reverse. For how did Newtonian physics explain the order of the solar system? It did so by appealing to a deeper mathematical order that holds throughout the entire universe. It showed that Kepler's three laws of planetary motion follow from Newton's more fundamental laws of mechanics and gravity. But Newton's laws describe an order far grander and more impressive than the laws of Kepler. There was more cosmic order to explain after Newton than before. And where does the greater order discovered by Newton come from? Newton's law of gravity comes from yet more fundamental laws, namely the equations of Einstein's theory of gravity. And lo and behold, the mathematical order described by Einstein's laws is even more splendid, beautiful, and profound than, the, than that found by Newton. And the process continues. It's believed that Einstein's laws of gravity, in turn, can be derived from yet more beautiful and profound laws, very likely those of so-called M-theory or superstring theory. As one goes deeper, the mathematical ideas become more sophisticated. Kepler's laws can be explained in a few minutes to a student in junior high school. 
To understand Newton's laws, however, one must know some calculus. To grasp Einstein's theory of gravity, one must know about curved four-dimensional non-Euclidean space-time. The mathematical depths of superstring theory have not been fully understood after 30 years of intensive study by many of the world's greatest minds. This is what the progress of physics, especially in the 20th century, has shown with ever greater clarity. The deeper we probe into the hidden workings of the physical world, the richer, more intricate, and more magnificent the mathematical structure we find. And we find this mathematical structure in the mathematical laws themselves. All of this has changed the context in which we think about design in nature. When the questions that scientists asked were simply about the shapes or patterns seen in tangible objects, however beautiful, it may have seemed out of place to speak of them as fashioned by the hand of God. They could be accounted for by the operation of the laws of physics. But now that the deepest laws of physics themselves have been found to form a magnificent mathematical edifice of great subtlety, harmony, and beauty, the question of a cosmic designer has returned with greater force than ever. In 1931, the great mathematician and physicist Hermann Weyl gave a lecture at Yale University in which he said the following, quote, Many people think that modern science is far removed from God. I find, on the contrary, that it is much more difficult today for the knowing person to approach God from history, from the spiritual side of the world, and from morals. For there we encounter the suffering and evil in the world, which it is difficult to bring into harmony with an all-merciful and almighty God. In this domain, we have evidently not yet succeeded in raising the veil with which our human nature covers the essence of things. But in our knowledge of physical nature, we have penetrated so far that we can obtain a vision of the flawless harmony which is in conformity with sublime reason." Unquote. Minucius Felix, in the year 200, spoke of the providence, order, and law in the heavens and on earth. The deeper we have penetrated into the structure of the universe, the more order and law we have seen, so that the ancient argument for God from the order of nature has been strengthened, not weakened, by scientific progress. The third development I'll speak of has to do with whether there is purpose in nature. It's easy to regard natural things as having purposes. For example, the sun seems to exist in order to provide the energy that plants need to grow, and rain to provide the water. From this, it is a short step to ascribing such purposes to a plan existing in the mind of God. And the pre-modern science of Aristotle was based on teleology, the idea that natural processes and entities were directed toward ends or goals. Heavy objects fell in order to reach the center of the earth. Living things heal from injury in order to reach the goal of bodily health and wholeness. But this teleological approach to science was set aside by the scientific revolution, especially in physics, and replaced by a mechanistic approach. Events were no longer seen as drawn toward future goals, but as being driven blindly along by past and present causes. 
Modern physics explains how the sun formed and generates energy without any reference to ends. In the perspective of modern physics, neither the sun nor its energy are for anything, such as supporting life on Earth. Rather, life on Earth takes advantage of the energy that happens to be there because of the sun. Darwinian evolution pushed this mode of explanation further. To put it simply, trees do not exist so that monkeys can climb them, but rather some creatures adapted to the presence of trees by evolving the ability to climb. But the idea of purpose in nature has staged a revival. And again, it's not so much at the level of tangible things and their structure, but at the level of the laws of physics themselves. Over the last 40 years or so, physicists have become increasingly aware that many features of the laws of physics seem arranged just so as to make life possible. These are sometimes called anthropic coincidences. One could give many examples. I'll mention just a few. If the world did not obey the principles of quantum mechanics, for example, atoms and molecules would not be stable building blocks with well-defined properties out of which living things could be built. If the so-called down quark or D quark were lighter than the so-called up quark instead of heavier, then ordinary hydrogen on which all life depends would be radioactively unstable. If the so-called strong force which holds nuclei together were even a small fraction weaker than it is, a crucial nucleus called deuterium could not exist, and the nuclear reactions that power the sun and similar stars would not take place, depriving Earth of the energy needed for life. Moreover, the fusion processes that occur in stars and which were required to form all the elements of the periodic table, besides hydrogen and helium and a little bit of lithium, would not have been possible. We live in a universe that has three macroscopic space dimensions. That is, three dimensions of space in which you can move by macroscopic distances. There might be some microscopic dimensions that we haven't yet found. If the number of macroscopic dimensions of space were greater than three, gravity would act differently and not allow planets to orbit stars. Planets would either plunge into stars or fly off into space. With fewer than three large space dimensions, other things, disasters happen. They would almost certainly make life impossible. So three is a very special number of space dimensions if you want a universe with life in it. One could go on and on giving examples of such anthropic features of the laws of physics. The most obvious way to explain them is to say that whatever mind conceived the laws of physics did so with the purpose that life should arise. There's an alternative explanation called the multiverse idea, which I haven't time to explain, though I would be happy to discuss it in private or in the Q&A. If the universe is a multiverse, as it well may be, it would explain some, though not all, of the anthropic coincidences, but it wouldn't dispose of the evidence for purpose in the fundamental structure of nature's laws, since a multiverse must itself have very special laws. Thus, one way or another, the laws of physics have to be special for life to arise. By the way, the vast size of the universe, which is often seen as a sign of human insignificance, is actually one of the things which makes life possible in our universe. The astrophysical and biological processes by which life arose required billions of years to unfold. And according to Einstein's theory of gravity, 
a universe which lasts for billions of years must attain a size of at least a billion, uh, at least billions of light years across. A universe that never got larger than a human scale of distance, say thousands of miles across, would last only a small fraction of a second. The fourth development I'll discuss has to do with the issue of determinism and free will. Let me see how much time. When did we start? At 20 after? I'll be, I have five more minutes if you can bear with me. Or maybe four. <laughs> for, for 300 years, all indications were that the mathematical laws of our universe are deterministic. That is, given the state of the universe at one time, the equations would determine its whole future development uniquely, as was famously stated by Laplace 200 years ago. This was a powerful objection to the idea of human free will and greatly disturbed religious thinkers. And if anything seemed solidly supported by science 100 years ago, it was physical determinism. By then, to the, uh, every, all the laws of physics known up to the early 20th century were deterministic, those of gravity and electromagnetism and everything else. But then, to the astonishment of physicists, determinism was overthrown by quantum mechanics in the 1920s. For it turned out that a fundamental feature of quantum mechanics is that its equations do not, generally speaking, predict what will happen, but only the relative probabilities of various future outcomes. That has seriously weakened the physics objection to the possibility of free will. To quote Hermann Weyl's 1931 lecture again, quote, we may say that there exists a world causally closed and determined by precise laws, but the new insight which modern quantum physics affords opens several ways of reconciling personal freedom with the laws of nature. It would be premature, however, to propose a definite and complete solution to the problem. We must await the further development of science, perhaps for centuries, perhaps for thousands of years, before we can design a true and detailed picture of the interwoven texture of matter, life, and soul. But the old classical determinism of Hobbes and Laplace need not oppress us longer." Unquote. The fifth and last development that I will discuss has to do with the question of whether mind, and particularly the human mind, is reducible to matter, as materialists claim. As biological processes have increasingly been understood in terms of chemistry and physics, and as neuroscience has shown how intimate the connection is between mental phenomena and events in the brain, many people have become convinced that mind is simply an emergent property of matter. This conviction has been strengthened by the increasing ability of computers to perform tasks that in humans require intelligence such as playing chess or translating languages, so that man is now seen by many as not having a soul, but as just a machine made of meat, as was, uh, or a wet computer. <laughs> a machine made of meat is attributed to uh, Marvin Minsky, one of the founders of the field of artificial intelligence. However, two very profound 20th century discoveries have cast considerable doubt on the idea that the human mind is but the operation of a physical mechanism. These discoveries are quantum mechanics and Gödel's theorem. I can only discuss them very briefly. Quantum mechanics, as traditionally understood, 
distinguishes between physical systems on the one hand and conscious observers of those systems. The reason in rough terms is the following. Quantum mechanics, as I mentioned, deals in probabilities. Probabilities have to do with what someone knows or doesn't know. The more you know, the less you have to rely on probabilities. The one who knows or doesn't know the state of a physical system and learns about it through observations or measurements is traditionally called the observer in quantum mechanics. And to know requires a mind and consciousness. Thus, it has been argued by some eminent physicists that quantum mechanics implies that mind and consciousness are as fundamental to the constitution of the world as matter is. Heisenberg himself said, not Walter White, but the original Heisenberg. <laughs> Heisenberg himself said, for example, that the mathematics of quantum mechanics, quote, represents no longer the behavior of particles, but rather our knowledge of their behavior, unquote. Sir Rudolf Peierls, another leading 20th century physicist, said, the quantum, quote, the quantum mechanical description is in terms of knowledge, and knowledge requires somebody who knows. And when asked whether it could be something, he said, no, somebody. The Nobel Prize winning physicist Eugene Wigner commented that, quote, the very study of the physical world led to this conclusion that the content of the consciousness is an ultimate reality, unquote. That is as fundamental as matter. Moreover, an argument that goes back to the great mathematician John von Neumann says that the mind of the observer is not completely describable by physics. The mind of the quantum mechanical observer is not completely describable by physics within the framework of quantum mechanics. Here is Pyrrhus again. The quote, the premise that you can describe in terms of physics, the whole function of a human being, including its knowledge and consciousness, is untenable, unquote. This is why Wigner stated that materialism is not, quote, logically consistent with present, day quantum, with present quantum mechanics. Gödel's theorem was an epoch-making discovery in mathematical logic proved in 1931 by Kurt Gödel, one of the greatest mathematicians of the 20th century. What he showed was that there is more to doing mathematics and to discovering mathematical truth than merely mechanically following rules, the way a computer does, for instance. From this, some have argued that the human mind, when thinking mathematically, is not just operating like a machine. Gödel himself rejected the materialist view of the human mind, calling it, quote, a prejudice of our time. The philosopher John R. Lucas of Oxford University wrote in 1961, quote, Gödel's theorem seems to me to prove that mechanism is false. That is, that human minds cannot be explained as machines. So also has it seemed to many other people. Almost every mathematical logician I have put the matter to has confessed to similar thoughts, unquote. Lucas developed a careful argument for this conclusion. Since the mid-1980s, this Gödelian argument has been championed and further refined by the eminent mathematician Sir Roger Penrose, also of Oxford University. A point that Lucas and Penrose emphasize is that the human mind is capable of doing something that a mere computing machine cannot, namely understanding concepts and grasping meaning. I should make clear that most scientists would be skeptical of the anti-materialist arguments based on quantum mechanics or Gödel's theorem. 
Nevertheless, these arguments have been advanced and defended by several of the most brilliant scientific and mathematical minds of the 20th century. One thing, therefore, is clear. Materialism is definitely not a conclusion to which modern science necessarily leads. We see then that the discoveries of the 20th century have shown us a world that looks more like the world of Christian faith than did the science of 100 years ago. We find that the universe probably did have a beginning, after all. We find that the laws of nature have a richness and profundity of mathematical structure that bespeak design. We find in those laws many features that suggest that the universe has a purpose, which is to give rise to life. We find that the determinism that seemed to refute the possibility of free will has been overthrown. And we find that some of the deepest discoveries of physics and mathematics suggest that there is more to the human mind than physics or mathematics can describe. I've covered a lot of ground. I hope I have shown that Christianity and the Catholic Church specifically has been a friend of modern science and has in turn nothing to fear from modern science. The real antagonist of religion is not science itself, but scientific materialism a reductive philosophy that comes from a blinkered view of reality and indeed a blinkered view of science itself. I thank you for your attention. Dr. Barr, thank you for a marvelous presentation. It was, it was exciting. Thank you. Uh, I gave you, I'm sorry, it was two questions, but one is a restatement of the first question. So you can read them, that's fine. Thank you. Uh, what support for... Okay, I'll read the question. Yeah, okay. Thank uh, you. What support or obstacles can be found for the possibility of the, quote, theory of everything uh, on the basis of philosophy or of science or of history or of theology? Does such a theory make any sense a priori? Uh, the only objection, I, I would say, I don't like the term a theory of everything. I would say a theory of everything physical, okay? And I would say most uh, people in fundamental physics, you know, such as particle physics, most people in fundamental physics uh, believe in their gut that there is some ultimate th theory of, of all physical phenomena, uh, one unified coherent mathematical theory of all physical phenomena, which is what people in my field are trying to, to find. It might be superstring theory, uh, but I would say, uh, and I, th I think such a thing exists, and uh, we, we may or may not ever find it, but I think it exists. Uh, as long as you say everything physical, because uh, not everything is physical. Uh, now, can we prove that there is such a theory? Suppose we don't find it. No, but uh, there are a lot of things uh, which I won't go into. The whole history of physics, actually for 400 years, there's an increasing unification in our picture of nature, uh, which has gotten much, very dramatic and impressive in the 20th century. So all indications are that, that, that things are converging on a single unified theory of all of physics. This is going to be a very uh, kind of sweeping question, but fitting with such a sweeping talk. Uh, the world's second largest religion is Islam. And at one time, it had a great sense of scientific flowering. Have you ever wondered what the impact of 
religion is on science, but science is actually on religion. What does science tell us about the nature of religion? And I'm thinking somewhat in particular about Islam. Have you ever wondered about that? Uh, that is a sweeping question, so I'm going to punt on it. Uh, um, it is, uh, uh, Islam did uh, for a period from around 800 AD for several hundred years after that contribute a lot. Uh, Islamic civilization, a lot of uh, science was done, especially in medicine and astronomy. Many of the terms we use have uh, uh, an Arabic origin, words like algebra, algorithm, you know, the number zero, a lot, a lot of terms, alcohol, so on, alkali. Uh, I can go on and on. But, the, but uh, for some reason, uh, things sort of petered out in the Islamic world. And the torch was really picked up in Western Latin Christendom sometime in the Middle Ages. Um, there's an interesting book I recommend by a historian of science to whom I referred in my talk, uh, Edward Grant, called The Foundations of Modern Science in Medieval Europe. Um, he speculates, and he's written more, another book which I haven't read more recently, um, which I, I've been told is very good. He's not Catholic. I don't know if he's even a believer, but he uh, strongly emphasizes the role uh, that uh, Western Catholic Christianity played in the founding of science. Uh, he, he, in one of his books, he says that the different, that what happened in the Muslim world, and I'm no judge of this, is that even though a lot of important science was done in the Muslim world, that the, uh, the theological establishment in the Muslim world was never comfortable with, for example, uh, Greek speculative philosophy and science. So did it, whereas in, the, in Latin Christendom, the church was actually very interested in, in, in natural, what was called, science in those days was called natural philosophy. The church was very interested in that. In fact, in medieval universities, natural philosophy, which was the Greek, ancient Greek science, was a prerequisite for studying theology. So the, it was more institutionalized and, and looked, uh, it was not looked upon askance by the Christian theological establishment as it was in the Muslim world. I'm sorry, I have a question on, uh, when I see biologic processes, I see complexity. And when I see this complexity, I'm just, uh, I think of design, of a designer, na naturally God. Why then are so few scientists believers? Um, there's two questions there. Uh, I think, Again, you're making a sort of a possibly unintentional or intentional reference to the intelligent design movement, possibly. I'm not sympathetic to that movement for a number of reasons I won't go into. My main concern there, I think it is quite possible that there's a natural explanation for biological complexity. And as I explained in my talk, that doesn't mean that it wasn't all part of God's plan. Um, and, and so I think the risk of using biological complexity as an argument is that it falls in, it plays into the hands of the atheists by saying, ah, here is something in nature which science cannot explain, the bacterial flagellum, the blood clotting system, this or that piece of complex stuff in the biological, science cannot explain that, therefore God did it. But, well, that, that's pitting science against religion right there. Science didn't, can't explain, so God did it. So it's one or the other. You set up a battle right there. The ID people think they'll win that battle because they think science will never explain these things. Uh, 
but maybe science will explain some of these things, and then we've lost, you see. I mean, then, we, then, we, then we're, we've set ourselves up for a fall. So that's, a, that's a, but uh, why are many scientists atheists? Uh, there are many reasons, partly the, um, some historical, part of it's the mythology that has grown up and been accepted by everyone, which has now been totally debunked by historians, that science and religion have always been at odds and that science grew up in opposition to religion and all that kind of thing. Some of it's an occupational hazard. If you're an economist, you tend to think, explain everything economically. You know, if you're a political scientist, everything you explain politically. Psychologists will explain everything psychologically. If you're, if, you're, if you're studying matter, and that's what you do for a living, you study the physical world, you tend to explain everything physically. It's an occupational hazard. That's possibly part of the answer. But you'll find as much atheism among journalists as you will among physicists, probably more. I suspect there are far, I mean, I know a lot of religious physicists, a lot of them, some are my friends, many devout Catholics that I know. Uh, I suspect you'll find more uh, religion among physicists than you will among journalists. So it's not, it's not necessarily science that's the culprit. I'm actually asking a question for an online viewer. Are there any um, correlations between scientific materialism and radical environmentalism? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I can't, I don't know. Um, you find lots of radical environmentalism among religious people. Uh, there's a lot of, um, I, don't, I, I don't know if there's a correlation. I think radical environmentalism often is, is part of a kind of a pantheistic nature worship. So I, um, it's hard to say. Great talk. If you put aside the, uh, you know, the completed argument, I think you'd say on the Catholic Church view against science, can you comment on the fact that uh, somewhere probably 20 or 30 percent of the people in this country um, in the fundamentalist world um, would think that there would continue to argue that there is an irreducible conflict between science and a 4,000-year-old world and you know, their view of the history? I think a lot of fundamentalism, fundamentalism in the sense of a very literalistic interpretation of Genesis is a modern phenomenon. Uh, if you go back, say, go and read St. Augustine's great work on the interpretation of Genesis, De Genesi ad literam. And it's a, very, it's, it's a very, it's a fascinating thing. You couldn't get more non-literal than, than the way Augustine was interpreting Genesis. And he would say, well, this could mean this and this and this. And he gives five different explanations of what, you know, when God created heaven and earth, what did heaven mean? What did earth mean? And, and, what, and, 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 he, would, and he didn't decide which one was right. He would say, this one has these problems, this one has certain problems. And, but the, many of them were extremely allegorical or symbolic. Uh, he did not believe, for example, that creation took, some people say, well, you know, maybe the seven days, the days were not 24-hour days, it was the, the word yom could mean any period. Augustine didn't believe that creation unfolded in any period of time. Seven days or seven, he believed that all of creation happened in an instant. And Aquinas said, uh, referring to this, said, the view that uh, creation happened successively is more in accord with the letter of scripture but that Augustine's view is, has more in accord with reason. And therefore Aquinas said he preferred Augustine's view. So the idea that you had to interpret Genesis in this kind of wooden-headed, literalistic way is modern. Why is it, why did it happen? I think because in the Protestant world, you don't have a magisterium. 
And so how do you protect yourself against liberal interpretation of Scripture? By not allowing interpretation of Scripture, by saying it all has to be taken extremely literally. The minute you say, well, this can be interpreted in a non-literal way in Genesis, then they'll say when St. Paul says something about morality, well, we don't have to take that literally either. And, uh, and so it's a protection mechanism uh, against uh, theological liberalism, which Catholics don't need. And, and when I was giving a talk at, uh, down in Alabama once, a, a very bright college student asked me, a, a, an evangelical, in the Q&A, he said, Look, you say that the universe is billions of years old, but once, if we reject the literal interpretation of Scripture, he said, then who's to say that you know, we can interpret all sorts of things in the Bible any way we want? And I said to him, you've asked the right question. You said, who's to say? And I said, the church is to say. And the Catholic Church does not interpret Genesis in this literalistic way, never has made that an article of faith, and yet the church has not succumbed on all of these moral issues. Thank you very much, Dr. Barr. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540 635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be evermore manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.